This podcast is brought to you by Uconnect, the creator of the first all-in-one virtual career center. Scale your impact and engage more students with a platform that puts all of your career resources in one place. Hey friends, welcome back to the Career Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Metzger, and this week I'm excited to welcome Jackie Warner, the Assistant Director of the Center for Career Success at Thomas Jefferson University. In this episode, I talk with Jackie about how career services teams can better support neurodivergent students. Jackie talks about what neurodiversity is, what unique challenges neurodivergent students face when it comes to career development, what accommodations career services teams can make for neurodivergent students, and more. Hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for being here, Jackie. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. And I'm excited to talk to you today about how career services can support neurodiverse students. I know this is a topic that you're super passionate about and have a lot of experience in. And I also know this is super top of mind for a lot of career leaders out there right now. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm excited to dig in and talk about best practices for supporting those students, chat through some of the barriers they face, and then talk through what can be done, what accommodations can be made, and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's going to be a great conversation. Before I get into the rest of my questions, Jackie, is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself, your background, or your role there at Thomas Jefferson? Sure. So I think it's important to take note, right, that I have not always been in career services. I actually used to be a special education teacher in the elementary setting. And I went straight through undergrad because I was really passionate about people with disabilities and I got my master's in severe autism and disabilities. So I started my career working out with people who mostly have more severe disabilities. So when we think about like a spectrum of things, right, we think about people who may be nonverbal, people who will be in a wheelchair, and just kind of trying to make sure that they're able to access the environment around them so that they can have the most normal and best life possible. And then, you know, with COVID and everything, I made the transition to higher education. So here I am and I'm trying to continue, you know, just being an advocate for people with disabilities and continuing to have that work. So it's really exciting to me that so many people are interested in neurodiversity and want to talk about it because I can talk about it for hours. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So I'm curious, what led you to career services then? That's a really great question. So when I was in my master's program, I actually worked in residence life and housing And I was the graduate assistant for campus engagement at the University of Delaware. And they had a really great program. And I really enjoyed being on campus and working with students. And I found that what I enjoyed the most was helping them reach goals, right? So instead of just planning like fun events on, you know, their dorm or whatever, I actually really liked talking to them about their career field and where they were going. And this job actually kind of was recommended to me from a friend. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'm qualified for that. And she was like, you absolutely are qualified. It is mostly teaching and working with students and helping them get where they want to be. So I gave it a shot and it's been really great. I had a little bit of training in the beginning just so, you know, I'm caught up with everything and I really enjoyed working here and working in career services. Okay. I love that. It's always so interesting hearing how people get into the field because it's like, there's not There's no degree for career services. Right. (laughs) So everyone kind of has their own path. Exactly. 
Great. Well, before I get into my more like specific questions about our topic today, I want to kick us off with the question I ask all of our guests, and that's what does career everywhere mean to you? I had to give this one a little bit of thought before our meeting here today, but I did kind of come up with just access, right? A big part of my career and just my mission as a practitioner is letting people access information and knowledge, right? How many times have we heard a student say, like, I never would have thought of that, or, oh, I didn't even know that before. That's what I think about when I think about career everywhere, just accessing knowledge that maybe you wouldn't have thought of or didn't know before so that you can help students access that too. I love that. It's a great answer. All right. So I think it's time for us to like dig into our topic today. I think it would be helpful if we just started off with what is neurodiversity? Neurodiversity is the infinite diversity in our brains and the way that we think and experience the world. People, you know, see colors a little bit differently, right? So it's kind of like that. How do you function? How do you feel sensorily in the world? How do you, you know, interact with people, places and things, right? So if you have something that is considered being on the neurodiversity spectrum, you are neurodivergent. So neurodivergent refers to one person. Neurodiversity is like the group of people who are neurodivergent. And neurodiverse is just talking about the infinite possibilities inside of our brains, which we honestly don't even know all of the infinite possibilities yet. A very common symbol for neurodiversity is the infinity symbol because brains are all so unique. Everyone is unique and everyone really is on the spectrum of neurodiversity. But when we think about neurodiversity and what kind of diagnoses may make you neurodivergent, we often think first of autism, but that's not the only thing that can be in the neurodiversity sphere. It's also ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia, but with math, dysgraphia, which is difficulty writing. And there's so many other things that people consider themselves to be neurodiverse. People with certain mental health disorders, such as anxiety, OCD, things like that, maybe even PTSD, may consider themselves to be neurodiverse. It's really up to the person to decide, do I even want to claim that term? Do I consider myself part of this population? And everyone who is neurodiverse is different. That was a great overview. I know we kind of talked about this in in our prep call a while back, but for those who are listening or watching and don't know, like I was diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago as an adult. So like this topic is also very near and dear to my heart. And I just having learned so much more about it since my diagnosis, it just makes so many things make sense, particularly some of my struggles in college in terms of studying, in terms of just learning. Like I, I realized I didn't, I never really learned how to learn. And so like that was a big struggle. So this is, I think, just such an important topic. And I'm really grateful that you're here and that you gave such a great overview. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I also was recently diagnosed with ADHD. I suspected it for a little while. And something, you know, I'll just throw out there that a lot of people are talking about right now in terms of neurodiversity is everyone's getting diagnosed or everyone's self-diagnosing themselves. I think it's important to do research. And if you think you might have something, definitely see a doctor. That's the only way really to know for sure. And there are, of course, situations where you might want a second opinion as well. So definitely seek professionals. But how I realized I probably have ADHD is actually on TikTok. So, oh, interesting. <laughs> I am officially diagnosed, but <laughs> I was watching TikToks and I was like, wow, that sounds exactly like me. 
And a lot of women just don't get diagnosed because most of the things that we're taught as educators is based on studies that are done by people who studied white boys. So women and people of color often do not get diagnosed. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting once I started learning more about it, because a lot of the behaviors that are typically associated with ADHD, I think, come from studies of young boys, like the hyperactivity or the distraction or whatever, when there are so many other symptoms. Very much that I am still learning about myself (laughs) today, too. Yeah, still, it's an ongoing process. But even just having the diagnosis makes such a difference because it's like, okay, there's a reason mm-hmm. my brain functions a little bit differently, or I do like I just have some of these mannerisms. It personally allowed me to give myself a little more grace when struggles would come up. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sitting here with all my fidgets and, you know, all my <laughs> like a fan. I have my own HVAC system behind me because I have a hard time processing temperatures. I'm like, now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> it all makes sense now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, kind of on this note, you know, what are some of the barriers or the unique challenges that neurodiverse students face, especially in terms of career development? So we did kind of just touch on one, but it is not being diagnosed, right? My evaluation cost $450. So, you know, as a professional and an adult, I have been working for a while. So I do have that kind of money to spend on a doctor's appointment. And it's just one doctor's appointment was that much. But when we think about most of our college students, they do not have that money or they do not have transportation access to see a doctor because they wanted me to go in person and take an in-person assessment. You know, that's definitely a barrier because in order to receive accommodations in the United States and higher education, you have to have documentation of your disability. And, you know, just so we're clear, being neurodiverse, having ADHD, having autism, All of it falls under the Americans with Disabilities Act, so I may refer to things as disabilities kind of interchangeably just from my own experience, but, you know, just putting that out there because not everyone who considers themselves neurodiverse is they don't consider themselves disabled, and that, you know, goes back to what I said in the beginning of, you know, everyone kind of decides their own labels and how they want to talk and feel about everything. So that's definitely one barrier, not being able to access accommodations. Another thing that I found in my research that's been really interesting specifically with people with autism, is they may not want to identify themselves because it may make them feel like they may be socially isolated on campus. When we think about higher education, you know, there's so much of that social aspect and they might not want to get special accommodations in class because then, oh, everyone knows that I have autism. And, you know, some people own it and some people are not comfortable with that. And there's so many reasons for that. And some of them can be having a bad experience and you know, their school system before they got to higher education, having a bad experience with other peer groups or even doctors. So, you know, there may be a variety of reasons people do not disclose or do not have accommodations when even we as career services practitioners are kind of like, okay, you really would benefit from this, but maybe they're not comfortable or not able to get accommodations. Some of the other things that our students face specifically with career services is the frustration of just sitting down and doing it, right? Making the resume, writing the cover letter for some people who are neurodiverse, especially those when I'm thinking about like dyslexia and dysgraphia, right? How difficult is that to read and to write and to just get it done? It is so difficult. So specifically with those students, it can be really helpful to, you know, have them have that accommodation of verbally transcribing everything, which is easier to access now. It used to be like you needed a special computer system or a special pen. 
So that's definitely something. And it also can be that social communication. Some people who are neurodiverse have trouble reading social cues or like sitting still, right? Or when I am in a meeting or doing something that doesn't interest me, my body starts to physically shut down. And I know now that's because I have inattentive type ADHD. Um, and there's things I can do to fix that about myself. But I fall asleep without wanting to because my brain just shuts off. It's just like, oh, we're not interested in this. So it's very difficult to complete tasks that I don't want to do. And, you know, sometimes that resume is something you don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate to the whole like body shutting down thing. It happens to me all the time on, this is interesting, on like road trips when I'm a passenger. Yes. There's nothing to engage my brain, just asleep every time. Exactly. I get that way too. (laughs) Okay. So knowing some of these unique challenges or these barriers, what can career services professionals do to support neurodiverse students? I shared this with you and you found it on my LinkedIn as well, but I actually created a support toolkit for the National Association of Colleges and Employers because they did a presentation there earlier this summer. And one thing that I've heard from a lot of practitioners is like, I want things that I physically can do. I function really well with lists. I want to see it. I want to know exactly what it is. I don't want like the concepts thrown around at me. So I've made a specific list of things that you can do. And Meredith, I know you said that you were planning on putting that in the show notes, which will be really, really helpful. It's also on my LinkedIn if you'd like to connect with me there. But the biggest thing that we can all do is be an ally for all disabled students and just be there for them. If a student tells you, hey, I really need to take notes, can you please you know, take a break in between talking or talk slowly, or just like, let me write that down. Or I really need to edit this while you're talking. So can you give me a moment to fix that? Or even, hey, I see you made notes on my resume. Could you email that to me? Right? Those are really easy things that students might ask for. And we might say, well, like, no, you're an adult. And that's extra work for me. Right? But we don't know why they're asking that. They could be asking that because they're neurodiverse. They could be asking because they have anxiety. Maybe their English is not their first language, right? That's an easy accommodation we can make for all of our students is just listening to what they need and believing them. We don't need to ask if they want us to talk more slowly. Well, do you have an accommodation for that, right? We don't need to put that out there. We can just talk more slowly. And I know sometimes it can be a pain and it can make appointments longer or students might need to make more appointments with us. But at the end of the day, our purpose is to help students. And that's one of the best ways we can help them. So another thing that I struggle with myself is providing direct feedback. So limiting the fluff and things, don't use, you know, synonyms or acronyms or things that maybe other people might not understand outside of the career services world or just in general, right? So, you know, in Philadelphia, we call everything Philly. Like it's not Philadelphia, it's Philly. So, you know, if I go to someone who is not from Philly and they're like, I don't know where Philly is. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, oh yeah, I just got a job in Philly. I'm in Center City, you know, like over by this, that and the other. That might be how someone feels when we're talking about something related to career services, like a resume or a CV, like what even is a CV, right? I don't know what you're talking about right now. So, you know, that's one way to do it as well. So an example that I used earlier in my presentation was, you need to edit this bullet for clarity versus, well, I feel like this bullet doesn't make the most sense in the world. Maybe we can tighten it up or let's get to the meat of things versus like, let's talk about this section of your resume, Right. So instead of, 
using slang or things that you're used to saying, just try to be as direct as possible because a lot of people who are neurodiverse may not understand what you're trying to say. And people who are speaking English as a second language also might not understand what you're trying to say. So again, it's multiple populations that we're assisting. Yeah, that's a lot of really great advice. I especially appreciate the being direct part because it's sometimes it's hard to like, as the recipient of that feedback to kind of sift through like, what do they actually mean? And then if you're like me and you have anxiety as well, it's like, oh my God, they hate me or they think this is terrible. You're too anxious to even ask. <laughs> right, right. So it's always nice when it's direct and I can trust that, okay, they said what they meant. Right. They had more constructive feedback, they would have offered it. Exactly. Yeah. And going off of the anxiety thing too, one great thing that we've tried at Jefferson and only one student used it, but we helped one student was a career fair quiet room. And we're going to try this again in the fall um, for our fall career fair. But essentially it's just making a space at the career fair, hopefully a room with a door so you can close the door, but a place where the lights are off, either there's like lo-fi music or white noise or no sound at all. And it's just quiet. It's just a place where you can go collect your thoughts, take a deep breath, review your notes about employers. You can go before you talk to employers, in the middle, take a break. You go after when you're like, oh my gosh, that was so much I need to decompress, right? Before I go back to my roommate or my entire freshman floor and they're all going to want to talk to me. (laughs) So having a quiet room can be really, really helpful to so many of our students, not just those who are neurodiverse, but people who are neurodiverse can get overwhelmed more easily than other people. And how overwhelming is a career fair? You know, especially as a student, you walk in and there's people everywhere. Everyone is talking. The lights are bright. So much is going on. As someone with, you know, ADHD, sometimes I find myself like getting really distracted when I'm trying to talk to one person at a career fair. So I find it to be helpful too, to just go in and say, hey, I'm going to talk to this one person and I'm really going to focus on what they're saying and write every single thing down, even if I didn't need to, right? So that's just a strategy I use personally, but having that space for them to be in like a quiet, calm down, decompressed area is really helpful. And another thing that's really helpful is having the map available to students ahead of time. Show them where each employer will be, because chances are, if you're having a general career fair, they're not going to want to talk to every single employer. And instead of having to walk around the overwhelming situation to find them, they just go directly to who they want to talk to and leave. <laughs> that way they limit their time in the overwhelming situation. Yeah, I I know. Trying to think back to like, if I was going to a career fair, I think I would t- want to talk to one employer, maybe go to that quiet room, take my notes, <laughs> debrief with myself, go to another employer, come back and like just <laughs> keep yeah. going like that. Yeah. It'd be nice to have that option for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's some really great ideas for how career leaders can support neurodiverse students. I, I'm i curious, what advice do you have for like career counselors who are working one-on-one in an advising session with a neurodiverse student? So two disclaimers here. One, a student may disclose to you and not to the accommodations department or to their professors or friends. So if a student says, hey, I have ADHD or hey, I'm neurodiverse, that is private information and and treat it as if it's confidential, right? So they might tell you that so that you have a better appointment. So don't tell the accommodations department, right? Trust that they will as needed. And there might be a reason they haven't if they haven't. So a lot of students who are neurodiverse don't even need classroom accommodations because they are so incredibly smart and good at their field, but they need accommodations for preparing for an interview, right? 
So with that being said, the other thing that you should do if a student discloses is thank them. So some language you could use might sound like, oh, thank you for telling me. Is there anything I can do to make this appointment better? Or, oh, thank you so much. And if you're neurodiverse, you could even say, like, me too. <laughs> I've connected with a lot of students that way. But, you know, just thank them and ask, you know, is there anything I can do? Because they're probably telling you for a reason, but it can be difficult for them to find the language to say, like, I really need help with knowing what to say in an interview, or I really need you to slow down, or I need you to, you know, write things down for me or let me write things down. So, you know, prompting them with that open-ended question can be really helpful. And they might say no. They might just want you to know that in case they have, like, ticks or social things that they're doing that might, you know, be kind of weird. They might just be giving a disclaimer, you know. So that would be the first thing. <laughs> with career counselors, the other thing that you can do is having the information easily accessible. So after the meeting, if they don't remember what you said or they remember part of it or not all of it, having multiple methods of students being able to access like templates or examples, things like that on your website, on Canvas, on Handshake, whatever you're using, that can be really, really helpful. The other thing that you're probably already doing post-COVID is having multiple methods of meeting. So some people are really going to prefer in person. I'm an in-person type of girl, but I know a lot of people prefer Zoom. And that might just be because in Zoom, they can control the entire environment. I know personally, I'm really sensitive to smell. And I don't know what's going on when I walk into somebody's office. They could have an air freshener that gives me a migraine, you know, or they maybe they had tuna for lunch and that's really bothering me. And what, what are you going to say? Don't eat the tuna, right? It's their office. So Zoom can be really helpful for that, but also, you know, just for that social communication. Some people find it difficult to make eye contact and it's easier to look like you are without making eye contact on Zoom, right? So things like that can be really helpful for Zoom. Some people prefer phone. So with the phone meetings, you know, some people will prefer that because of the social cues, right? That they feel like they have trouble reading social cues, body language, facial expressions. So it's just easier to hear the words and not even have to worry about, oh, what does somebody look like right now? Are they angry with me? Are they not angry? I can't really tell. Are they feeling frustrated? So using that direct language again, but also providing multiple methods of meeting. One thing we're working on with our virtual office slowly but surely, is providing different methodologies of accessing information as well. So maybe we have a document explaining things. Maybe we have like a fun graphic explaining things. Maybe we also have a video. Maybe there's also, you know, a tutorial where we just like walk through it without our faces in the video and just talking or kind of like a podcast format. We're trying to make everything as accessible as possible in as many different ways as possible. That way all students you know, whatever they need can access everything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sounds like there's a lot that career counselors can do. And it just starts with asking, what can I do? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I have gotten a question on is, what should you do when you're in an appointment and you can tell that the student is becoming frustrated or you can tell maybe they're not getting it or you're suspecting something? Don't ask, right? If they haven't told you that they're neurodiverse or have a disability, there's probably a reason they don't want you to know, right? Or they're not comfortable with you yet. Maybe if they make another appointment, they'll tell you, right? And if they tell you, don't say like, oh yeah, I figured, right? Just say thank you. <laughs> and then the other thing with that is do what you would do for any other student. If there was any student in your office getting really visibly frustrated, take a break, 
right? Maybe you make an excuse, say, hey, I need to refill my water or hey, I need to go to the bathroom. I'll be back in like two minutes. If you need anything, help yourself, like, you know, go, there's water fountains, whatever, you know, make an excuse if you're not comfortable just saying, hey, do we want to take a break right now? Or, you know, commiserate with them. Just say, this is really hard. I've had to say this to a lot of students. This is not normal. Writing a resume is very difficult. Being in an interview situation is very stressful. Acknowledge their feelings. And that's helpful for most people in this situation because it is a weird and hard thing that they're doing. Yeah, it is. And typically they're preparing to do it multiple times, Mm -hmm. multiple resumes, multiple cover letters, maybe multiple interviews. Like it's a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Do your students get terrible career advice from YouTube and TikTok? Give them access to better video content with Candid Career Plus. The YouTube of career videos, Candid Career Plus is an expansive video library with thousands of career-focused videos that cover a wide range of topics, interests, industries, advice, and more. And every video is sourced from best-in-class career content creators, including ADP List, Way Up, and many more. Learn more at goyouconnect.com slash candidcareerplus. I'm curious if, let's say a a career counselor is meeting with a student, they have disclosed that they are neurodiverse and maybe they ask for advice on like, should I disclose in an interview process or at a new job? What advice do you have for career counselors as they navigate that question? Absolutely. And that's a very hot topic in the disability world. And I think that it's important with all of our students, to be honest, if they have something that may qualify as an individual invisible disability. So that means maybe they wouldn't notice right away that you have ADHD during the interview process or dyslexia or what have you. You may benefit from not disclosing just because when you disclose, you're bringing in the possibility of bias, conscious or unconscious. The interviewer or recruiter may not even realize that they are not choosing that person because they have disclosed, right? So Sometimes, you know, I've talked to recruiters about how I'm a really big advocate for people who are neurodiverse, and they'll say, what is that? I've never heard of that before. So if a candidate came up to them and said, I'm neurodiverse, you know, and all they've got is Google, right? What kind of things are they going to find online? We're not in control of that. So if you are in a situation where you need to ask for accommodation, it is their legal right to do so. But one of the greatest resources I have found is the Job Accommodation Network. It is a government-run website, and it has templates and examples of letters to ask for an accommodation. So let's say you had an initial phone screening and are going into the interview, but you need the interview questions ahead of time. You can show students the Job Accommodation Network and help them write a letter to that employer saying, I have this and I need this. Some students will need to request accommodations. And this kind of goes for all students with disabilities, right? When I recently attended at the Philadelphia Neurodiversity Employment Network, we actually got to listen to a panel of students. And they said the biggest thing that they wish is that employers would give them a chance because they're probably going to be really good at their job. And we had professors there who had employed students at their university who are neurodiverse. And they were like, yeah, they got the work done in like two weeks. We thought it was going to take all summer. Like we had to find other things for them to do, you know? So I think if there are any recruiters listening to this, 
give them a chance because they're probably going to be really great at their job. People who are neurodiverse typically have special interests and will go into related fields and they're going to be really passionate and really good at their job if you let them. Yeah. That was me when I was in journalism Mm -hmm. and now too, but like I majored in journalism and I could tell when I switched my major to journalism, I was sitting in my first class and I got like butterflies just listening to the syllabus. And I was like, yes, this is what I'm passionate (laughs) about. And it was kind of, it was the first time that I was ever like in a class and I wanted to read the textbook. I was able to read the textbook because I was so interested in the subject matter. Exactly. It's like finding your niche when you're neurodiverse can be so powerful. And then you just have to figure out how do I talk about it? How do I show someone that I can do this? And actually one thing that we're seeing more of in the interview process in general, but this is a really great accommodation for students who are neurodiverse to ask for is, you know, maybe I'm not great at interviewing, but like, let's say I'm doing computer programming. When am I going to have to have an hour long conversation with people during the day? Like realistically, not very often, but maybe I can show them some things I've programmed. Bring your portfolio, have an e-portfolio, send it, bring it to the interview. And then on the recruiting side, one thing I would recommend is for all candidates, right? Especially in technical fields, have a problem you've previously solved, right? So we don't want to accidentally be stealing people's ideas or labor, but a problem you've previously solved that was tricky and could be solved in a week or two, right? Or just to have a start to the solution, send it to candidates and say, what would you do in this situation? Or what ideas could you see coming from this? And that can be a really powerful way to see who can think outside of the box, who's creative, who maybe would bring something to the table that your current team wouldn't. And that can be a really good way to find out who's going to be the most valuable asset. And it's also a really great way to find those people who are neurodiverse that have really great ideas and just are not very good at verbalizing them. Yeah. It's like, who can make those connections that maybe you never would have made yourself? Exactly. I think we've talked about a lot of great ideas for how career leaders can support neurodiverse students in those one-on-ones, maybe at career fairs. I'm curious if you have any advice about adapting programming or presentations or things like that to be more inclusive or more easy to digest for folks who are neurodiverse. Absolutely. One big thing is providing the slides ahead of time. And I would say, you know, even maybe having some paper copies at a presentation. So personally, I really like printing the slides when they're like, you know, one half is the slide and then the other half is that note section. That way you're taking notes on the specific slide. So you're not reiterating everything, but you can build off of the bullets. That's how my brain works, right? So providing the slides ahead of time, you know, online or printing them would allow someone to do that. It also would allow someone to think about, okay, what information am I about about to be presented? And do I have questions that I'm going to need to ask? And how would I word that question? Because some people may need more time than others to think about questions. And they may need to build the confidence or, you know, practice wording things before they get there, right? So they might have a question they want to ask, but you know, they needed more time than you gave for the question and answer section to ask it, right? The other thing is generally for accessibility, make sure that you are using large fonts and easy to read fonts. Funnily enough, one of the best fonts for people with low vision is actually Comic Sans. 
But some other good ones are like Ariel, Caprini, Times New Roman. And when I say low vision, I also am including like people who are getting older and start using readers. Both of my parents are in that camp. I know one day I probably will be too. Um, Right now I'm really nearsighted, so I can't wait for bifocals. But, you know, with that, that can help so many people in the audience that you might not even think of. You know, make sure you're using contrasting colors. And so that means, you know, light background, dark text, dark background, light color text. But one thing that we found with people who are neurodivergent and people specifically who may have PTSD or anxiety is do not use flashing lights, like those big flashy fun slides, right? But like where they like, boom, drop in or, you know, make a loud noise. Try not to use sound effects that are loud or could be alarming. I saw there was a presentation recently where they did like a laser beam, but immediately I was like, that sounded like pew pews, you know what I mean? And that was really alarming to me. And I just have generalized anxiety. And I was like, I cannot imagine someone who's been in a situation that caused them PTSD. I would feel awful if they were in this room right now. So be very mindful of what you're using as far as sound effects and use intentional photos. I do this all the time on like the opening and closing slides, like to get the students engaged, I'll put like a meme in. But on the other slides, try to use graphics, photos, images that are intentional. So they are furthering your point, not distracting people. Because, you know, when we're talking about cover letters and then we use like a GIF of that cat typing on the keyboard, then in my brain, I'm thinking about my cat. I'm thinking about all the things I need to write. I'm thinking about, oh, maybe I should Google a GIF and see if I can find another one of that cat. That's really funny. Or like thinking about a TikTok I saw earlier and I did not hear what you just said. Um, So, you know, using things intentionally and being aware of the, they might be triggering to people. I'm curious, what about like those presentations where it's just largely, maybe you just have to like speak the whole time. Like it's mostly just you talking at the students. Is there anything that career leaders can do to make it more engaging or make those mostly talking presentations more engaging for neurodivergent students? Absolutely. Again, you know, providing the slides, but also if you're planning on just kind of lecturing, having notes available, right? Or maybe an outline. And the other thing that you can be doing is providing closed captioning where possible, or even an ASL interpreter where possible. A lot of students that need those things will have them already with them or capabilities to have them already with them. But, you know, make sure that you have those things if you can have them. I know Teams and Zoom right now do both have closed captioning that you can provide. And the other thing that I always recommend to everyone ever is if there's a microphone, please use it. Because a lot of people may have trouble hearing you and are afraid to speak up because how embarrassing is that, you know, to have the person in the room who says, I'm, I'm a loudspeaker, I don't need that. And someone in the back actually does need you to use it. But now you've said that and they're thinking, oh, I can't ask or I can't say anything. And they just miss everything that you've just said. Or they might as well not even be there, right? So if there's a mic, use the mic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially like I know for me, like I have some like auditory processing issues, like it's a little bit of a delay. So like it's helpful if I can definitely hear the speaker. Yeah. For example, when I watch TV, I'm watching with subtitles, even though I can hear (laughs) just fine. Yeah. I watch with subtitles because I don't always catch the dialogue the first time around. Yeah, especially when it's like a British show. I don't know what it is, but I find their accent very distracting. And then I'm like, wait, I didn't know. Uh, What did they say? So if I can read also, I (laughs) 
And it's really just like UK shows for me. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> maybe it's just a me thing. I don't even know if it's neurodivergent. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just trying to decipher the accent and decipher the dialogue all at the same time. Exactly. Or I do the thing where, you know, you ask me a question, and I say, what? And then I start answering it right away because my brain just needed another minute. <laughs> yep. I do the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that about the career center that career leaders can do to make it more inviting, more, again, more inclusive for neurodivergent students? Absolutely. So, you know, having all of your information online, right, that virtual office, that website, making sure that it's easy to find. Where are you on campus? When are you available for students to come in or drop in hours? Or how do you make an appointment? But beyond that, make sure that your office is accessible. And if it's not, bring it up to the, either the accommodations office or leadership, because if it is not accessible, you are excluding students. And what I mean by accessible, it's physically accessible. If you were in a wheelchair, could you roll into your office? Could you roll into the bathroom? Could you use the bathroom, right? We have been focusing a lot on our campus on single stalls, right, or gender inclusive bathrooms. So, you know, we have those, but what I realized are the gender inclusive bathrooms on our floor are really small and I'm not sure that they're accessible, but it's really difficult to make them bigger. So how can we be gender inclusive in our building and, you know, work with people who may have a physical disability? Also having those gender inclusive bathrooms, like the single stall ones are actually really great for people who are neurodiverse right? You might be self-conscious. You might need to, you know, take a break from a meeting and just like calm down. But it's hard to do that if other people are in the bathroom, like talking or on their phone or whatever it may be. So that's another great thing to have for everyone, right? But beyond that, you know, just make sure that you have signage. Is your office easy to find? And beyond that is, do you have handouts, pamphlets, things in your office, like on my desk where I can sit with students I can turn my big monitor and they can see like, I'll show like, hey, this is my LinkedIn and here's what I did because a lot of students benefit from that visual. But I also have printed out, right, my LinkedIn checklist. So do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And they can take it with them if they want. And there's also one uploaded to our Canvas site. So either way, they have access to it. And if they can't get to Canvas, I can email it to them. You know, it's those little things that you might not think of. So providing paper copies and virtual, like virtually showing people things and just generally having places for students to sit. One great thing that I saw actually when I was in the residence halls was a lot of our residence directors had fidgets on the table for students to use. I loved that. That's a really great thing you can have too. Where can career leaders find those? Just like on Amazon or? Yeah, I got some really good ones on Amazon. There are some that are really cheap, actually. There's like these little dudes. This is probably not the best example, but he's a little like cat <laughs> bear thing. I don't know. His eyes are missing. But <laughs> I think a pack of like 40 of them was $10. So, you know, you can have one on your desk. You can give them out to students. We give them out. We have like stress balls and snack events on campus just, you know, to make sure students know we're here you know, at orientation at things like that. So we'll give them out then. And then students hopefully will remember us and then they can get one if they come in too. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So if you're watching or listening, just Google fidgets and you'll probably find lots of options. Yeah. We've talked a lot about a lot of different like accommodations and things like that, but are there any other accommodations that career leaders can make to better support neurodiverse students? Sure. I think one thing that is 
a good idea for everyone, right? For all of our students period is work from a strengths-based approach. So that would look like identifying student strengths and finding, okay, you're studying education or you're studying tech like computer science. In that realm, where do you best fit? What kind of positions will you be most comfortable in and where are you going to thrive? And you might already be doing that and not even realize it. If you've used StrengthsFinder, if you've used the Strong Interest Inventory or even the Myers-Briggs, right? You already are kind of getting at that, right? So you're helping students identify their strengths. You're helping to give them the language to talk about themselves in an interview. And that's what some people who are neurodiverse really just need. They need someone to say like, wow, you're a really good problem solver. You think outside the box. And they might not have ever thought of themselves in that way. And then you're giving them language to talk about themselves on a cover letter and in an interview. So those kinds of things can be really, really vital. And just helping them find their comfort career, right? The place where they're the most comfortable, where they're going to thrive, where they're going to be successful for long term. And that can be the most challenging thing. But it's kind of at that point, walking through the job description going through the interview process saying like, what kind of vibes did you get? What was your gut feeling? Do you feel like you could work with that person every single day? Right. And I think that that's something that we can do with all of our students, but it will especially benefit our neurodiverse students. I love that. That's some great advice. And kind of on that note, you've already offered a lot of great pieces of advice, but is there any other advice that you would have for career services leaders who want to better support their neurodiverse students? I do think that I actually got to everything I was thinking of, but, you know, I'm available to be reached on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk to people about neurodiversity. So if you'd like to set up, you know, anyone listening, if you want to find me and message me a quick question or set up like a 20 minute Zoom call, I'm very open to that always. That's something that I love talking about and always happy to support people. Great. And I'll, and for those of you who are watching or listening, I'll be sure to include a link to Jackie's LinkedIn page so you can easily go and find that. Jackie, if people want to learn more about neurodiversity, like do you have any resources or recommendations of places they can go to learn more? Yeah, that's a really great question. One thing that I recommend is doing research on LinkedIn, actually finding some top creators who have ADHD, autism, who are dyslexic, who have disabilities, who are neurodiverse. And then another thing that you can do is go to the Neurodiversity Resource Hub. This is created at Queens College, and it is something you have to request access to, but I spoke with the creator, and she is really great, and she was like, if any educators want to request to join, they're welcome to. It's a compilation from CUNY of research data, just general suggestions of how to work with college students who are neurodiverse. That has been a huge help in my research and also just, you know, learning more myself, right? There's also the Neurodiversity Hub and Neurodiversity in Business, which are both, I believe, UK-based, but they still have some really great um, resources. And one thing that I love is any Neurodiversity Employment Network, you know, Autism at Work, anything along those lines that you can find near you, they will have business partners where you can see, okay, that company is neurodiverse friendly because they are attending these meetings or they're attending trainings or they're certified for, through them. So for example, I'm a you know member of the Neurodiverse Employment Network in Philadelphia. So I can look easily at their website and tell students, all right, these are, this is a list of Philly area 
you know, um, neurodiverse friendly places that you can apply. And that makes me feel better as a career services practitioner, right? I know I'm not sending them off into the wilds with nothing, you know, so any, any kind of online organization or association near you that you can find can be really helpful. Autism at Work is also a great place to look. I know Dell, like the computer company, is a huge partner with them. And so is PlayStation, I believe, which is pretty neat. And the Yukon, they have a really, really great network of people who are interested in neurodiversity and employment. They meet, I think, either annually or semi-annually or maybe quarterly. <laughs> One of those three. <laughs> but they do have frequent meetings every few months where you can connect with other career services practitioners and talk about neurodiversity. Those are great resources. And and again, I'll be sure to include those links in the show notes so folks can go and check those out for themselves. Absolutely. At the end of every interview, I like to do this answer a question, leave a question thing. So I'll ask you a question that our last guest left for you, and then you will leave a question for the next guest. So our last guest was Kristen Garcia of Strayer University, and she left this question for you. What's one thing that people would be shocked to learn about you? That's a great question. I had to really think about this one too. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that the biggest thing people would be shocked to learn about me is that I have an invisible disability beyond being neurodiverse. And that's something that I really like to share because I think a lot of people think about disability and they have like a very, like one picture of someone in a wheelchair, right? Or someone who is an amputee in their brain. I have a neurological disorder that you will never be able to see. But I feel it every single day and it sometimes can interfere with my work. But for the most part, I've got some good coping mechanisms and a nice care team that's taking care of me. So, you know, I think it's just a nice thing to share, especially at the end. So it's like, oh, I didn't realize that. So maybe people can think differently about what people look like when they have disabilities. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, it's crazy. You never know what's going on inside someone. (laughs) Yes, that's what's that saying? Like always treat people with kindness because you never know what's going on in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, what question would you like to leave for the next guest? So I am on social media way too much and I've been seeing life (laughs) pro tips. So my question would be, what is your biggest life pro tips? Like what is something you do that you're like, this makes my life so much easier and not a lot of people know about. Oh, okay. I like that. I think we'll all learn something from that one. (laughs) I'll be tuning in. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's great, Jackie. And just thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. This was a really fun conversation. And personally, I learned a ton. Great. Yeah. About what career leaders can do to support neurodiverse students. And I know our audience is going to get a ton of value from this. So thank you so much again. Absolutely. I'm very happy to share all of that for your show notes and my work excited and all that good stuff. Yeah. We'll make sure that everyone has access to those resources and that they know how to contact you if they have more questions. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you very much again and have a good rest of your week. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this episode of Career Everywhere. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.